This week on The Sport Blokes. This week, we talk all things Ben Simmons and NBA Conference Finals. Melbourne United are on the precipice of glory in the NBL. Michael Owen scoring the wrong sort of goals. And Gary Rowan lives out every footballer's dream. Ownership implications, Olympic dramas, oh my God, let's go. So it's nine o'clock on the 22nd of June, 2021. As we do at the top every week, Stewie, what caught your attention and what'd you miss? Well, a couple of really cool things. Firstly, Ryan Krauser, the American shot putter, absolutely smashed the shot put record, which has stood for 31 years. Mm, Very impressive. Beat it by 25 centimetres, which I'm incredibly impressed by. To put into perspective how long this record has stood, though, Krauser was still two and a half years away from being born when the previous mark was set. Mm. So a really great achievement going into the Olympics. And Tom Stoltman became the first Scotsman to take out the World's Strongest Man title the other day. So he was able to take out the title by beating legend of the sport, Brian Shaw. No, not the former Los Angeles <laughs> Laker, Nathan. I can hear you thinking that. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think he would be World's Strongest. I wouldn't man. have thought so, no. But he, he beat him in the Atlas Stones final. That's an event that Stoltman absolutely owns. He actually holds the record for the heaviest Atlas Stone ever listed, 286 kilograms. Wow. Nuts. Okay. So a very good week for a couple of massive strong dudes. And just quickly, some disappointing news to round this one out for me with Rafa Nadal and Naomi Osaka withdrawing from Wimbledon within an hour of each other. And we just saw that Milos Raonic has withdrawn as yes, well. Yes, yes. Breaking news. That's so time of recording. both draws significantly weakened there. How about yourself, mate? Well, <laughs> it's the Twitter exchange. Now, obviously, the world... Uh, Cover putting down champ. I mean, sorry, the World Test Championships are on at the moment in England uh, amongst a shit ton of rain. Yes. But it's the Twitter exchange between Warney and some random that uh, that just had me in stitches. So, Warney, decent player in his own right, you know, just a lazy 708 test wickets, second all time. He's not retired, really, for him, is he? Best player of all time. Anyway, he tweeted, and I quote, very disappointed in NZ not playing a spinner in the ICC World Test Championship as this wicket is going to spin big with huge footmarks developing already. Remember, if it seems it will spin. India make anything more than 275 to 300. This match is over unless the weather comes in. So then someone by the name of Maka, who had the Twitter handle JustFlips96. They had it because he doesn't have it anymore. Yeah, yeah. He said, and I quote, Shane, do you understand how spin works? The pitch gets dry. The pitch won't get dry because for the rest of the test, there is due to be rain. <laughs> and then... At least he got the part about there being rain dew correct. <laughs> uh, but then the first reply at VV172493, great handle there. Um, he said, holy fuck, did you just ask Shane Warne if he understands how spin works? The Shane Warne? And as you mentioned, suffice to say, our friend Macca not only deleted the tweet, but he deleted his whole Twitter account as well. See, Shane Warne knows that much about spin that he doesn't even have to reply to that tweet. He has a, an entire army of, a chorus of, of yeah. minions that will yeah, do well, it. I, I looked at the thread. It's so weird now because it's like this tweet has been deleted and then there's all these comments. You know? that, that's one of those ones where somebody says that and the person next to them just puts their head sideways like, <laughs> what did you just say? Like, are you kidding me? Uh, but then the other big news, and this is this is great news. So Las Vegas Raiders defensive end Carl Nassib has come out as gay. And this follows Michael Sam, who came out prior to the 2014 NFL draft, where he was selected 249th in 2014 by the St. Louis Rams. He had a brief career, admittedly, but it also included a stint in Dallas as well. But this is great for Vegas. It's great for the league. And hats off to him for his bravery. You shouldn't have to be brave, but obviously some people... Yeah. Still have pretty antiquated attitudes. And, and as much as, you know, it is 2021, the world is still, I guess, transitioning from being so closed on these sorts of things to a world where it is just the norm. Yep. So, yep. no, absolutely amazing news and, and good on him. Yep. Hats off to him. What'd you miss, Matt? Well, I've actually not been able to see anything more than the highlights of the ICC World Test Championship, although it seems that most of the highlights was rain. Yes. So, probably haven't actually really missed too much. And unfortunately, like most summers in England, it does involve rain. But what I really missed was game two of the NBL finals on Sunday. Now, that's not to say I didn't actually see the game, but uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later. Yes, I had you missed cor- being there. had corporate tickets and missed out. Yes. How about yourself, mate? Well, I missed the cats and dogs. When I heard about the result, I nearly watched. And then I was like, no, NBA playoffs. Must watch another NBA game instead. Okay, Dikembe Matombo. So I've been going really hard on the NBA, but I will. I think I'll watch that this week. I think there'll be time. Fair enough. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, a quick bloody hell this week that goes to former Liverpool and Manchester United striker Michael Owen. 
Now, sports people being caught out in sordid affairs isn't too unusual, but generally they aren't the guys with that image of being the good guy, like Owen is. So he's been caught out reportedly begging for nude pictures from reality star Rebecca Jane, who was on Big Brother. Owen is married with four children, but he apparently sent hundreds of texts requesting up to 20 pics at a time. Even if you're single, that's greedy. It really is. <laughs> Jane went along with it because Owen was an idol of hers from her younger years, but pretty poor form all around. So to a former Liverpool star doing the wrong thing by his family, all I can say is, look out for that campy drawing of Queen Victoria. Help us. Help us. Bloody hell. Bloody hell. So we'll start with some quick news on the Olympics, Shui. We've got some big stuff going on there in a number of ways. My God, <laughs> I just don't understand this. I really don't. So it's 31 days until the opening of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, which is already ridiculous enough considering it's going to be more than halfway through 2021. Yeah, well, they're calling the soccer Euro 2020 still. So <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know which hashtag to use the other day for Tokyo. I used 21 in the end, but yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. Correct anyway. <laughs> but yeah, it's been revealed that the Games are now going to allow up to 10,000 spectators into events or 50% capacity up to that 10,000 mark unless there's an infection surge. This is on the back, though, of a member of the Ugandan national team testing positive at Tokyo Narita Airport. I mean... Mm. This is from a team that was fully vaccinated, all tested negative before getting on the plane. Like I've said it before and I'll say it again. I understand that sport is a hundred times better with a crowd, but like, have these guys never heard of the saying prevention is better than cure? Yes, yes. Well, it's tricky, isn't it? Because they want to recoup all the costs. I feel sorry for Tokyo for all the money they've pumped into Absolutely. it. But wiser heads have to prevail, don't they? Well, I mean, I know this would have been an absolute nightmare, but... Surely they could have just said, look, push Paris back to 2028, Tokyo gets 2024, skip this one yeah. and move on. I, yeah. I don't know. It, yeah. It's just, it's absolutely crazy. I, I still don't think that these should have been going ahead. The games have only been cancelled previously for wars, but you would argue that the world is still well and truly at war with these yeah, damn well, virus. With, so, with the new Delta strain. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, yeah, it, it just continues to amaze me that this is happening. Honestly, I would not be surprised if we see a massive, massive spike outside of the volleyball courts in Tokyo. <laughs> and then, assuming they go ahead, Ben Simmons, after pulling out of Rio and the last World Championships, has now pulled out of the Olympics. At least he's consistent. Yes. Except at the free throw line. Well, we'll get there. We will get Very there. Very sure. But no, this is obviously massive news just at hand as of really a few hours ago. And Nathan, you saw a really interesting tweet last night about this after obviously the, the mayhem of game seven. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> the uh, NBA strayer who he's a crazy character, isn't he? Anyway, his tweet, it was, it was very apt. He was like, what's the over-under on him pulling out one week, two weeks? And sure enough, it was one day. It wasn't even that. It was like three hours or yeah, something. Yeah. It's nuts. It is nuts. And we will talk about the Philadelphia 76ers capitulation to Atlanta in a moment. But it's really tough, this one, isn't it? Because we commended Naomi Osaka for pulling out of the French Open on mental health grounds. So we'd be hypocritical if we kind of stuck the boot in too much with Ben. But it is disappointing, isn't it? And there seems to have been a prevailing thought that it would have been a good thing for him to go to the Boomers and play for that team and be in a safe space with a lot of guys that will support him. And Yeah. I mean, going back to what you were saying before, I guess there's different kinds of disappointment. There's obviously you can be, you know, disappointed in a situation as opposed to disappointed with a person. I don't have a problem with Ben making that decision. It, it sucks. Obviously, this was an absolutely massive opportunity for the Boomers to finally medal after all the heartbreak of previous Olympic campaigns. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not still bitter about that ridiculous foul call. Oh, we'll be bitter them. until we do finally medal, let's face it. Absolutely. So, yeah, like, obviously, yeah, it sucks for the, the Boomers to miss out on a world-class player, but his head is clearly not in the right spot. And, yeah. You know, I think the best thing that he can do right now is get out of Philly, go somewhere quiet where people don't really know who he is and just just get away from it. Yeah, so it's interesting. So Gazy said today, Andrew Gaze, the greatest education I had was being involved in the Australian team. It is a culture like no other. I would implore him to do whatever it takes to be involved in that. And that's that's a common thought that's being thrown around and it would be an opportunity for him to prove his doubt is wrong almost immediately too, of course. But sadly, it looks like that 
middle chance is significantly diminished. Yeah, and I guess the other thing as well is it potentially gives him a chance to add a little bit more value to himself because, and we'll talk about this very soon, the likelihood is that he probably won't play for Philadelphia again. So, well, that's right, yeah. So, you know, give himself a little bit of extra value and go from there. Yep. So, sure, we'll skip ahead with game six. Philly handled their business in Atlanta. It was an impressive effort. It was a lights-out effort when the yeah. bloody stadium lights turned off with two minutes left in a one-point yeah, game, when, if I'm not mistaken. When do you see that happening, let alone two minutes left in, a, oh, in an elimination not game? Not good timing. Like, <laughs> it was crazy. I think Trey Young had just hit a three from memory as well, so he literally shot the lights out. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, I, I must admit, I haven't watched that game yet, and I, I will go back and watch it. But we've got to, let's just go straight ahead to game seven. What a... Crazy series this has been. One of the most bizarre series I can remember in recent history. Philly lost three home games. Mm. Three home games. Well, more importantly, Atlanta won three. Well, that's true. That's true. Won three away. That is true. But Philly were the highest seed. Yeah. So, look, it was a close and gritty first half, but Philadelphia would have been happy. Trey Young only had nine points on one of 12 shooting at halftime. So, they had him pretty under control at that point. They would have been thinking, okay, things are looking okay at this stage. But... Well, what can we say? Ben Simmons was a major reason why it turned to shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can look at his series as an entirety. You can look at each game individually, very similar reading, and it doesn't read well. I mean, the big issue, I guess, has to revolve around the, the free throw shooting and yeah. his, his lack of willingness to take them. Uh, and it all comes back to that, doesn't it? Because I think the issue here is mental. And he is so afraid of being fouled that... He was just so passive. He would do nothing. Yeah. He wasn't even shooting shots in the fourth quarter, and you've got a great stat on that. Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, the, the first play that everyone has put under the microscope, he's backing down on Danilo Gallinari, drop step to the baseline. He's Lovely turn. A wide open dunk. That yep. he, he would throw that down every time. Yep. Except for then. Yeah. Trey Young rotating across, a guy yep. who is about what? I don't know. 30 kilos lighter than him. And several inches shorter than him. And he passes up to Matisse Thibel. Yep. And you could see the the footage of Joel Embiid at the three-point line with that what-the-hell sort of, like, why are you doing that? And he's talking to him afterwards. But, yeah, the fourth quarter is a massive issue. He didn't attempt a single field goal in the fourth quarters of the last four games in that series. And he was three of three overall for the entire series in fourth quarters. Yeah. And they were all in the first three games, as you say. Yeah. So... When you've got a guy who is arguably the second best player on your team who is earning that sort of money to take four field goal attempts in an elimination game, that's that's a huge problem. It's not good enough. It's an- and you can't pass up that dunk because he would have made the dunk. So even if he'd missed the N1, he still would have got the two points. Yeah. So this is the, the problem, though, that it creates is because he's not willing to get in that situation where he could be fouled. Yeah. And look, Atlanta used the Hacker Simmons really well in some of the previous games. There was one game I can remember he went, what, 4 of 14? Well, it's for good reason. Yeah. Well, what was he, 25 of 73 in the entire series? The lowest free throw shooting percentage in NBA playoff history with a minimum of 70 attempts. His 34.2, worse than Shaq's 37.4 and Wilt's 38 in previous seasons. So absolutely hideous. And so obviously the result of that is what do you do in a close game? You put him on the bench. Yep. No, well, they had to. And it yeah. happened. Yep. So, you know, some of these games where you had Furkan Korkmaz playing in the fourth quarter down the stretch with Ben Simmons watching from the sidelines. Like, it, it cannot happen. A guy who is a, I don't want to say perennial all-star, but in his young career, he's I mean, he's been an all-star several times. He's a guy that LeBron James wanted on his all-star team. That's how good he is and how highly he's regarded around the league. Well, I think he was thinking he could pass the torch to Simmons because he was probably the most like him in the body and skill set-wise, you know? Yeah, but the problem is that Ben had just passed the torch straight away to someone else well, instead he, of running. Yeah, him, that's so. right. He's not shooting that torch. No, he's not. So, yeah, look, this is a, a huge issue. I, I would be utterly shocked if we saw Ben Simmons in a Philly uniform again. Oh, Stewie, I've got a stat muse stat that absolutely sums it up. Udonis Haslam took more shots in the only quarter he played this season, which was two shots in three minutes and a big punch. And 100% from the field. Than Ben did in the last six fourth quarters, one shot in 44 minutes. Mm, Not good rating. Unless you're a Udonis Haslam fan. 
It's astonishing Philly even got this to seven games, given they choked away two games at home prior to this third one. So they choked three home games in the series. And I think you told me, what, was it 99.1% chance they were going to win game five? On the ESPN predictor, yeah. Yeah, oh, the percentages have been higher at various stages throughout those games. Hmm. And I, it just the whole thing leaves you scratching your head. The other thing I think we need to talk about is, was he thrown under the bus and is it all his fault? So he's definitely been scapegoated. He'll be lynched out of the city of Philadelphia almost. This is, of course, the city that famously booed Santa Claus once. So they're not very forgiving people. This this is the city that booed Destiny's Child because one of their members was wearing a Kobe Bryant jersey at the All-Star game. Yeah, well, no, that's, that's fair enough. I think. Kobe's from Philly. <laughs> like, I know, I know. Okay, admittedly, it was a Lakers jersey, but still, like, like come on. Uh, yeah, well, no, that's they're, they're unforgiving. But does he deserve all the blame? So Embiid, for example, he's the first player to have eight turnovers in back-to-back playoff games since 1984. He wasn't perfect either. And he, in his press conference, kind of threw Ben under the bus and said that that dunk was the turning point of the game. Now, first of all, I don't know how it can be a turning point when you're losing. Normally, a turning point is when things change. But anyway. Also, he didn't kind of throw him under the bus. He drove the bus. Oh, yeah, he did. He did. He did. But he himself had a really key turnover when he did that little spin and lost his handle only a few minutes after that dunk. So I mean, he has been pretty average in the fourth quarter. And it was quite funny. Christian Petrarca from the Melbourne Demons. Oh, I saw that, yeah. He was very, very quick to back up Ben Simmons. He is friends with Ben. They played a lot of junior basketball together. And, you know, great to see him jumping in there and say, well, hang on a second, big fella. You had all these turnovers. You weren't clutch for most of the series. Maybe look at your own backyard first, which is a great point. It is a great point. Now, admittedly, he had very good numbers and he was playing on a torn meniscus in his knee. Mm. So MB did do a great job throughout the course of the series and the playoffs. But that's an interesting point you bring up Petrarca because I've been keeping a close eye on Twitter and Reddit to see the pulse of Australian fans. And most people were defending Ben, sometimes too much, much, which is what makes the Olympic decision so disappointing for a lot of people, I think. And and it's really interesting to see on Reddit today that tide's turned. Mm. So a lot of those people are off him. A lot of people are off him. Yeah. But then the other one we saw was was their coach, Doc Rivers, was very, very quick. So he was asked whether he thought Philadelphia could win a championship with Ben Simmons playing point guard, and his answer was something along the lines of, I don't think I can give you an answer to that right now. Which, so he was taking tickets to the bus that was running him over. Yeah, exactly. He wasn't driving it. Embiid was driving it, and Doc was taking the tickets. Do- Doc was doing all the luggage, throwing the luggage yeah, underneath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. wearing so, a little hat. Yeah, we had a fancy little hat. So, yeah, not a... Not a great combination from your star player and the coach who, yeah, I, I was listening to the real ones with Raja Bell. And I tell you what, that was, it's, it's tough to listen to. These these guys are the guys that are supposed to have his back. And this is what Raja was saying. And Logan Murdoch was saying the exact same thing. Like These are the two guys that should be backing him up. So, and look, yeah, these are conversations that should be happening behind closed doors. Yeah. You don't throw guys under the bus in the aftermath of a heartbreaking loss. Yeah. Okay, you're emotional, we get it, but play a straight bat yeah, and absolutely. deal with it later on. What do you make of Shaq's comments? If he was in my locker room, I would have knocked his ass out. Well, I would believe that because this is coming from the same Shaquille O'Neal who once choked out Gordon Girichek like 15 minutes before oh. the, the Suns were supposed to be playing. So, I forget about that story. So, yeah, I'd, wow. believe, I'd believe that from Shaq. I mean, he's there basically to make those sorts of ridiculous comments. Yeah, he is, in fairness. You're right. But, but no, as I say, I, I think what we should do is talk about Doc Rivers a little bit. Yeah, more. well, we do need to. He has 29 losses with a chance to clinch a playoff series. The most losses by a coach in NBA history, that 34 winning percentage is the worst all-time amongst coaches with 20-plus games in that situation. And, and it gets worse. He's got nine Game 7 losses in his career. Nine? Yep. That is a huge amount. A and number he, of chokes. And five of them are at home. Yeah, okay. Five of them at home. Yeah. That's not cool. Pat Riley is in second place with two. Right. So, yeah. you know, I, I think sometimes Doc Rivers might have been given a little bit too much credit for the fact that he was a part of the championship in Boston. I mean, he inherited just this golden team that, that did sensationally well. But when you look at some of the other teams that he's had in Los Angeles with the, the Clippers, Clippers. Yeah, they were a pretty built team when he came to the team. And they never made the conference finals until this year when, yeah. he, when he'd yeah. already gone. So. You know, I'm not saying that Doc is an overrated coach because he's a very, very good coach. But at the same time, like players can choke in the clutch, I think 
Doc as a coach sometimes doesn't do as, as good a job. Yeah, as well, you. no, a lot of people have been criticising his substitution patterns and that sort of thing. So, yeah. absolutely. So, yep. yeah. So, yeah, as I say, it's very, very easy for him to throw Ben under the bus. But, I mean, at the same time, I, the Sixers might be looking to move off him soon. Well, so he has run it back a bit on the Ben Simmons comment. So, he's saying that I believe that we can do the right work to bring him up to where he needs to be. That's That should have been the answer in the first place. Yes. Yes, it should have. Absolutely yeah, should have. It should have. Yeah. It should have. So I remember I watched every LSU game I could get my hands on when Ben Simmons played college there. And there were periods of games where his teammates would just freeze him out because I think they were jealous of him. They were jealous of the fanfare, particularly the, the guy who was kind of the star of the team before Ben joined. I forget his name. He never made the NBA. And... I kind of initially thought that it was just, okay, he's playing with dud teammates that don't know a good thing when they're onto one. But I now wonder if it was a personality trait. He's very passive. He turned down lanes to the basket. Kenny's breakdown at halftime was really good, actually. He showed some really key points where Ben fell down, even in the first half, let alone the second half, before the you know the non-dunk and all this other stuff happened. He just doesn't have that killer instinct, does he? Well, certainly not at this stage, no. Yeah. But look, full credit to the Hawks. I mean, we've got to remember that it wasn't the Sixers necessarily losing this. The Hawks came in there and they took it. Oh, yeah. Yep. Trey, Trey Young, as I mentioned, oh, probably around this time last year when I first saw him play, he's Alan Iverson-like, isn't he? He plays with a chip on his shoulder. He's got balls of steel. He's, he's a good star to have on your team in the playoffs. He is. And look, he'll always be indelibly linked to Luka Doncic, who of course, yep. gets all the fanfare because of what he does. But I mean... This is a guy who is in his first playoff run and he's averaged 29 and 11 assists a game in a seven-game series against the number one seed. And the only other player to do that is Oscar Robertson. So not a bad Pretty player. good company. <laughs> not yeah. bad at all. Yeah. Eight straight games of 20-plus points, seven-plus assists, which is a new postseason record. He could win a championship before Doncic. He could. He's a very, very good chance. So, yeah, I mean, this this team is just playing great ball. and it, But it, the, the interesting part about this, if you go back a season... Trey Young was just basically all about the three-point game. Yeah. It was three-point. Where's Steph Curry replicant? Yeah. It yeah. was threes and layups. Yeah. His game, and, and I know we talk about this a lot, but his game has evolved. The at playmaking. The, at, at almost the exact same rate that his likability. So if you go back a couple of seasons, it kind of looked like the Hawks players didn't enjoy playing with him. Mm. Now it's like everyone wants to be a part of this team. and you know, guys that are going into free agency next season, like that Atlanta would be a place you would want to go. Hotlanta, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That team. Yeah. Um, they do have a pretty interesting conversation to be had with John Collins afterwards about his extension, whether they give him the money that... How was the T-shirt he was wearing in the press conference? Did you see that? No, I didn't see it. What did, what did <laughs> it was a picture of him dunking on, on Embiid from an earlier game. I can't remember which game it was. But he was wearing that T-shirt wow. to his press. Yeah, talk about trolling. That's like reminiscent oh. of the Bam out of bio. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> but, but no, as I say, like I've, I've loved- I do like him. I've loved watching this team. And look, Kevin Herter. I mean, oh, yeah, we haven't even talked about him yet. I mean, he came out of nowhere. He, he did a bit of a Tyler Hero from last playoffs, didn't he? Yeah, a little bit. Just caught fire. Wow. And he has an incredible handle. I didn't realize how good his handle was. He was dribbling all over the place, through his legs, behind his back. Very impressive. It's, it's a deceptive handle. It's yeah. one that you wouldn't expect him to have, definitely. But, look, he's got a great range. It's just... Oh, yeah. Yeah, he knocked down that three ball. I don't think he's really been put under a microscope until now because he's playing in Atlanta. Yeah, and I must confess that prior to the playoffs, I hadn't seen a hell of a lot of Atlanta games this season, as I've mentioned previously when we've talked. So, But this, this kind of goes back to what you were saying last week about people saying, oh, Nikola Jokic is not a an MVP candidate. At the same time as they're thinking, I don't watch any Denver yeah. Nuggets games. Yep. It's the same thing with Atlanta and Trey Young is that people don't really understand how good Atlanta is because it's Atlanta. They were supposed to be irrelevant this year. Yep. And for the first half of the season, they were. And most people had the Knicks beating them in the first round like we did. Yep. That's it. Yep. So they, they've been phenomenal. I mean, ever since Nate McMillan came in, we will be the first ones to admit we kind of got that wrong. We didn't really know how much that was going to shift the needle. But Well, and again, the Bogdanovich injury, him coming back was a big deal too. But the, the numbers are pretty stark. 14 and 20 when McMillan took over, 35 and 15 since, including two series wins over high seeds. And I think the most disgusting thing about that is that he's still the interim coach. Yes, 
give that man a contract for God's sake. Yeah, well, yeah. Like, what's yeah. it going to take? And I dare say, you mentioned John Collins' contract. He's helping his case. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Playing, playing great ball. And look, they're getting timely efforts off the bench from the guys like Lou Williams. You know, you're getting a little bit coming out from Bogdanovich and Gallinari and these other guys. So, like, they're getting good performances by their role players. And I think this is why this team has been so successful. Well, let's talk, let's talk about their upcoming opponents, Chewy. So, we've got the Bucks and Nets who had two games since we last recorded. The Bucks handled game six. They did their job at home. And then we had game seven at Brooklyn, one for the absolute ages, wasn't it? Cracker. Well, so game six, put simply, was that Milwaukee made all the adjustments that we talked about yes, in the last episode. Yes, that's true. That's true. They put Giannis on to Kevin Durant. Durant was ineffective against Giannis. I don't think he had a single field goal going up against him. Can I tell you a stat on that? Of course. So, Shui, check out this little chart I've got here. It's got Durant defenders, field goal percentage allowed as closer defender in the last eight seasons. Tristan Thompson is the worst at 70%. And then it goes along the way. Jimmy Butler's around 50%. Chris Paul's around 45%. Giannis, top of the list, 40%. Why weren't they playing him on him from game one? Holy shit. Trevor Reza's second? Yeah, Wesley Johnson, Tayshaun Prince. There's some interesting names there. There are some very interesting ones in there. That That is crazy. Yeah, it's, I mean, that was a great adjustment. Giannis stopped shooting the three as well. It was the first playoff game in three seasons that he didn't attempt a single three-pointer. Yep. So he's getting to the basket. Yep. I think he had, what, 30 and 17. So, yeah, look, some huge adjustments they made there. Chris Middleton went ballistic, 38 points, 10 rebounds, five assists, five steals, he five three-pointers. He was excellent on the defensive end. He was fantastic on the, particularly near the end. Very good. Jay's the first player since 1974 to record back-to-back five steal games in the playoffs. Yeah, right. Nuts. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah look, game six, a huge, huge adjustment by the Bucs. But, yeah, game seven, obviously, was what it was all about. A couple of quick things. The first game seven road win in Bucks history and the first overtime Game 7 since the Spurs and Mavs in 2006. Well, But if Kevin Durant wore a size 17 shoe instead of a size 18, we'd be talking about a whole different result. And it was an amazing shot, like turnaround, fade away. It was crazy. Yeah, I mean, I did the whole like, no, like full well knowing that he was going to hit it. Yep. Because I was so torn. I wanted the Bucks to win, but I picked Brooklyn. So I'm kind of uh, like, yes, yes. like, I knew it was going down. The, the one in overtime was ugly. Though. That, that was, we won't. Even well, he played 48 minutes. I think he was knackered. He played 53 minutes. So well, he played, sorry, he played all of regulation. I mean, yeah. to be honest, their best player in overtime was Brown. Yeah, Bruce, yep. He was. He was their best player in overtime. Like, unfortunately, Durant had just run out of steam. And it's really interesting to hear some of the commentary. So I haven't listened to any NBA podcast for a couple of weeks, actually, but I've, I've listened to Bill Simmons recently and they reckon that that's why he went for that big shot at the end of regulation because they needed to go for the win yeah. there because they just had nothing in the tank. Yeah. How disappointing when you go for the win and you're not even taking the right shot. Well, there was only a five combined field goal attempts from, from both benches combined. Wow. That's the fewest since starters were first tracked in playoff games in 1970-71. Holy crap. So it's no wonder they were knackered. Yeah. Look, this, honestly, this whole series just comes down to too much being put on Durant's shoulders. You're talking about no Irving, minimal James Harden. Harden certainly got better in, so I didn't watch game six. Game seven, Harden certainly looked a lot better than game five. He certainly, he gave the effort, which is the important thing. And and look. Yeah, I thought he looked better. His stat line was better too. Full credit to him for even gutting it out. Most people would have sat that out, but. Yeah. And he did benefit from five points from bullshit fouls in the first quarter. Well, so he started very well. well he started yeah. very well. Yeah. But then you tack on Joe Harris. I mean, this is the NBA's league-leading three-point shooter at 47%. No, oh, he had a shocker. And he shot 24% from three in the last five games of the series. Yeah. So it's not a great thing. Look, I don't think they did anything wrong. It was just, unfortunately, they weren't able to get past the injuries. And... I think they're capable of coming back and winning a title next season if they run it back this, with the same line. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. So yeah. And there's a, there's a feeling of inevitability with super teams. You know, LeBron's first Miami try didn't work. True. So they, they will. I'm glad they didn't win this one because they probably will win one. And I do want them to have a little bit of... Heartache and failure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Adversity. Um, only the seventh overtime game seven in NBA history. But I think the supporting cast was really key. So, Brooke Lopez played really strong D down the stretch. A couple of big blocks. Had one big one on Durant. Middleton was excellent on D at the end. Excellent. 
Drew Holiday didn't have a great shooting game, but at the end of the game he, when... He hit the three that counted. Yeah, and he hit another little layup there too. So he hit some big shots down the stretch at the end of regulation. There were no field goals between the 154-minute mark left in the fourth and the 112-minute mark left in OT. Mm. So they clearly were running on fumes, both teams, by yeah, the end of it. it was one of those overtimes that was ugly to watch, but it was so intense at the same time. So, it, yeah, look, cracking series, cracking game seven. Congratulations to the Bucks. Couple of other quick observations for me. The PJ Tucker exchange with KD's mum was pretty damn funny when KD was at the line and Tucker was talking to KD's mum who was sitting courtside and then KD cracked a little smile. It was such, if it was a regular season game, you'd be like, okay, but it was late stage of a game seven. It was such a weird interaction, yeah. but it was lovely. It was, it's that human stuff that you really like. But how's this for a theory, Stewie? So, Giannis has taken a long time at the line the whole playoffs to the point where they started counting him. 12. Yeah, they started. Well, this is this is where I'm going. So they started counting him in the Miami series and he actually got timed out on a couple of free throws on the Miami series. Now, one of the reasons for his free throw shooting woes, in my opinion, was a lack of routine. But them counting him, and I can't remember who was commentating. Was it, who was it? Was it Grant Hill? I think it was Marv Albert and Grant Hill. Grant Hill. Grant Hill said on a number of occasions... They're playing him into form at the free throw line. Yeah. And it was true. Do you know why? Because he was shooting on 12 every time. Yeah, yeah. So he went from having no routine at the line to them giving him a routine. So he actually hit seven in a row at one point because he was shooting on 12. All of which are violations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, because they were counting quicker than a well, clock. I don't think they were counting that much quicker. No, they weren't because I used my stopwatch. Ah. So when they got to 12, it was 10.59 on my stopwatch. Still over 10. So picks... For Atlanta and Milwaukee. I mean, I want to say Atlanta, but I, I, I just can't. It comes down to this. Who the hell is going to stop Giannis? Yeah. Like, Milwaukee have guys that can slow Trey down a little bit. Their shot blocking at the back with Giannis and Brooke Lopez is going to make it harder than what New York and Philly's made it. I think the Hawks can still get two, but I've, I've gone with Milwaukee in six. Me too. I think that Milwaukee probably should win in four or five, but because of my lack of faith in Budenholzer, because Giannis does weird things with shooting threes when he should be taking it to the rack, because Middleton and Holiday have been a little bit up and down, I'll say Milwaukee in six too. Cool. On the other side of the draw, we have more crazy games. The Clippers in Utah. The Clippers got through in six, even after Kawhi didn't play the last two games. What the hell is going on? All right, I want to start this off by saying that the Utah Jazz are the most frustrating team in the NBA. Rudy Gobert is seven foot one. He has a seven foot nine wingspan. He's massive. He is a strong guy. The number of times Utah would use a pick and roll to get Gobert's man onto Donovan Mitchell or Mike Conley. Well, Conley wasn't playing much, but... But later in the series... Yeah. And then they're leaving the likes of Pat Beverly, who's six foot one, or Terrence Mann, who's six five, inside on Gobert, and the Jazz use that advantage to jack up a three. Drives me nuts. If he played with Chris Paul, Rudy Gobert would average twenty. Oh yeah, of course. He'd Absolutely. get ten points on lobs every game. Easy. Yeah. So, but, but they they small balled Utah into submission. Let's face it. Absolutely. But the the problem is, like, if you look at some of the numbers. It talks about how far over-dependent they are with the three. So in game five, the Jazz took 80 shots from the field. 54 of them were yeah. the three. Well, it's their strategy is to just get threes. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't even much better in game six. 85 shots for 44 threes. And it's, it's frustrating because Donovan Mitchell is an awesome player. His numbers show that he is an amazing player. He had 39 points, nine three-pointers, nine rebounds, and nine assists in game six. First player ever to do that in the playoffs. And he was a bit banged up too. He went to the bench a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. But you're playing against a small ball team. It's like, if you're not going to use Gobert on offense, then he's wasted. Yeah. Because you've got guys like Nick Batum, Marcus Morris. They can just drag him out to the three-point line, which you know gives these other guys a really, really good run in. I mean, Reggie Jackson got to the, the rim a couple we, of times. We haven't talked about Reggie Jackson yet. He's been excellent all playoffs for the Clips. He has. Excellent. He, he, everyone forgets how good a finisher he is at the rim. Obviously, And he's got supreme confidence too. Yeah, obviously he's a good three-point shooter. He kind of always has been going back to the OKC and Detroit days. But, I mean, <laughs> shit. Like, if you ain't going to use Gobert on defense, you may as well go small ball and match up with him. Mm. That's what I'm getting at. So, yeah, look, Reggie Jackson was phenomenal. I mean, Terrence Mann, we've got to talk about his effort. Yeah, his game six, Shuey, was quite remarkable. So he scored 10 of the first 12 Clippers points, leading Mike Breen to say, it's a mad explosion out there. Oh, Man, out. I, I just get, think of Borat get talking out. about, you know. <laughs> get, get out of the mobs. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, but it, I don't know. Look, 
I don't know if it's because I knew the result before I watched the game or it was the energy of the crowd or what it was. Perhaps the way these playoffs have been going where there's been no safe lead. Even when they were down 25, I still felt like the Clips could win. Yeah. And I did have the benefit of knowing they did win. So maybe that did. But it was really weird. Even though Utah smashed ahead at the end of the first half and the start of the third, you still had this feeling, you know? You had this feeling. Well, I was watching it live. And when it got down to about 16, you knew it was coming. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because every offense, Utah would come down, jack up a three, and then come straight back down. The Clippers would get a wide open look because, again, They've got guys that Go Bears matched up with on, on the, the defensive end who are really good three-point shooters. And it was like, right, if Go Bear comes running out at that, he's leaving a wide-open shooter in the corner. And Terrence Mann was the big beneficiary. Oh, yeah. Seven of 10 from three in that game. I mean, he had 20 points in the third quarter, which is a Clippers playoff record. It's his career high in NBA or college. Yeah. Only, in they, a playoff closeout game. He only had 25 as his, his previous career high in the NBA. Yeah. So... They had a great tip dunk in the first quarter. But, I mean, the, the, the first half, I mean, Jordan Clarkson had 17 consecutive Utah points mm. and 19 in the half. That's because he doesn't pass the ball. Well, yeah, true. But So, yeah, as you say, the Clips scored 40 in the third, 20 by a man. They erased a whole 25 deficit in one quarter. Well, I mean, if you look at just the three-pointers alone, the Jazz were 9 of 24 in the second half. Pretty decent number. Not talking horrific. It's sort of high 30s. The Clippers were 14 of 19. Yeah, well, they outscored the Jazz by 34 in the second half, which is the fourth best second half points differential in NBA history. So there you go. But they shot 71.4% yep. in the second half. Yeah. So it's, it's no wonder they came back. It's, it's hard to win games when you're giving up that sort of percentage, and that's that's why the Clippers won. So so you've talked previously, Stewie, about teams having a crack at the final that haven't really been in the running for a really long time, which is great for the game. The Clippers have broken the longest US drought of seasons without a conference finals appearance at 50. Mm. For the record, the Hornets 31, the Blue Jackets 20, the Texans 19, and the Pelicans 19. The, the other crazy thing was it's only Atlanta's second. They never made a conference final with Dominic Wilkins, Kevin Willis, Doc Rivers, Spud Webb, that team? No. Wow. Because I know they're that always running into the Celtics and the Pistons. The Celtics, the Pistons, Jordan's Bull, yeah, the Knicks with Ewing. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah. It Ridges. still surprises me a little, though. It, like, you oh. think that they, I know that they had that awesome game between Wilkins and Bird, but I think that was a second round game where they had that massive duel. Yeah, where Bird went for 60. And Wilkins went for 50 something, I think. Yeah. yeah. Or, or 49 or something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not surprised they didn't make it because that Eastern Conference was stacked back in the Yeah. Early I don't know. Days. It wasn't a terrible Hawks team though. Like, it, it wasn't, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, okay. We got, a, we got a tip this one. Phoenix and the Clippers. Yeah. So uh, look, we tipped this before game one, obviously. I really wanted to pick Phoenix. Even though Kawhi Leonard's out, I feel like Chris Paul was a slightly bigger loss, even though he probably brings a lot more consistency and clarity to what he does. And we didn't say much about that last week because of time constraints. So Chris Paul has COVID. He missed game one in COVID protocols. Yep. He will almost certainly miss he, game he two. Will, he will miss game tomorrow two it's, it's for the same announced. reason. Right. But Leonard's out for game two as well. So I reckon Leonard might be done for the series, man. It's possible. Marcus Morris is in serious doubt for tomorrow too. Look, He's hurt a knee. I had the Clippers in six. And I, and I look, I still think the Clippers will get game two. You got to look at this. Devin Booker had a 40 point triple double in game one. And the Clippers still nearly won it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't watched so, that game yet, admittedly, but... Just just quickly on that as well, random stat for you. The only other player in Suns playoff history with a 40-point triple-double is Charles Barkley in 1993. Oh, you know, we're talking about on the TNT halftime report, yeah. This is also a home game, and the Suns also won that 120 to 114. Wow. How crazy is that? That is crazy. How crazy yeah, is that? Yeah, that is crazy. So, yeah, it look, it's going to be an interesting one. I, I hope I'm wrong because I want to see Phoenix play Milwaukee or Atlanta. I would love to see the Suns make it. I think we're on a collision course for a Bucks suns NBA Finals. Look, I've picked against them in rounds one and two. I'm not making that mistake again. I'm going to take the Suns in seven. They're shooting at historic percentages. I am really worried about Kawhi missing for the entire playoffs, if not a few games. So, I'll, yeah, I'll pick the Suns. I hope you're right. Just quickly, though, to close this one out, Rajon Rondo and the Clippers remain the only chance to continue that ridiculous streak that a teammate of Shaquille O'Neal has been involved in the finals every year uh, since, since Greg Kite in the 1983-84 season. <laughs> that's nuts. It's, it's ridiculous. So, yeah, that's the only reason I would even want the Clippers to get through. But We'll yeah, keep an eye on that one. We will.
So there's still tons going on, Stuart. We can't possibly cover it all. The NBA draft lottery is tomorrow. We will quickly talk about the Kemba Walker trade. So, yeah, pretty decent-sized trade. Dare I say the first of many for OKC and Boston in this offseason. OKC have 18 first and second-round picks in the next seven years. <laughs> yeah, I know, but given what's happened with the process in Philly, is this a good thing? <laughs> anyway, we'll see. <laughs> I, stand yeah, yeah. I stand by my laugh. So, yeah, Oklahoma City get Kemba Walker, the 16th pick in the 2021 draft and the 2025 second-round draft pick. Boston gets Al Horford, Moses Brown, and a 2023 second-round pick. As an OKC fan, I don't particularly love giving up Moses Brown. He looks like a pretty good young defensive player. As a center, though, that's exactly what Boston needs. But, look, another first-rounder to add to the collection. And Kemba Walker, a guy when fit, still a top-10 point guard in the league. So, a very, very good player. So it's going to be an interesting move. We all know what Brad Stevens thinks of him, though, because the rumor is when Ainge was going to trade for him, Brad Stevens said, no, we don't want him. And of course, the first thing Brad Stevens does when he takes over from Ainge is he gets rid of Kemba Walker. Thank you, Brad Stevens. Could we see Rick Carlisle coaching the Celtics? Well, he played there. So be a decent destination for him. That'd be great. Yeah. He said he played in Beantown in some of those yeah, championships. Yeah, teams, yeah. So. On the bench, stuck on the bench there. Yep. We will look at all that stuff in the coming weeks. So, Shuri, we've decided to wait to talk about the Gazies after the season finishes because there's just so much going on and we do try to keep our episodes to as close to an hour as possible. The last few weeks has been nigh on impossible, though. But the grand final is in full swing. Yeah, look, before we get into this, I want to take a, a moment to preemptively apologise if any of this comes across as salty or Perth fans making excuses or anything like that. Let me be very, very clear. Melbourne United are worthy champions of this league this oh, season. Oh, of course. Absolutely. They've been atop the league the entire season almost. They were one of two teams I was tossing up with before the season even started as title favourites. We just want to quickly look at some of the facts, which is where it probably will sound a bit salty. Now, naturally, we are disappointed as Perth Wildcats fans. The opportunity to three-peat doesn't come across very often. I mean, no. the 03 to 05 Sydney Kings and 2011 to 13 New Zealand Breakers are the only teams to do so in the league's 43 seasons. Yep. So it doesn't happen often. But when you have it torn away so devastatingly like this, it Or the does. opportunity torn away. Yes. It wasn't a fait accompli. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. But the, the chance of having a competitive close series... Yeah, just ripped away. Yep. I mean, obviously, the Bryce Cotton injury hurt. That was enough for me to pick United in a sweep to start with. And with two games down in Perth, it's kind of looking like that's pretty much going to happen. Yeah, yeah. We'll go through those in a moment. But then Luke Travers, who was a catalyst for the series win over Illawarra, ruled out for games one and two at least with a calf yeah, injury. Yep, yep. And then Clint Steinle played 13 minutes before he did his groin, all while Mitch Norton's running around on a an absolutely stuffed hip at the moment. He should not be playing. It's hard to watch. Like, this would be the equivalent of United losing Chris Golding, Joe Luala Chul, Sam McDaniel, and then Mitch McCarron hobbling. Well, Jack White is out, so... I guess you could stop him for Luala Chul. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, it, it is a bit like that, isn't it? Yeah, so it makes it a, a much more even series if you do it like that. But look, I mean, full credit to the Wildcats. They have played their hearts out. The one thing I did want to just quickly talk about, though, before we get into these games... There were a lot of complaints on social media around Perth having the opening two games played in Perth. Yes. Which is ridiculous because obviously it's a COVID thing. Yeah. Perth will then have to spend two weeks in quarantine when they get back to Perth, presumably after game three. Andrew Gaze made a good point too. In the old days, the road team did start at home. True. It used to be away home home. Mm. So, But the thing is, like, what these fans are conveniently not mentioning is the fact that Melbourne United played 23 of their 36 games this season in Melbourne or Bendigo. Yeah, in Victoria, yeah. While Perth played only 14 of their 36 in Perth. Yeah. So if there's going to be an asterisk over the Wildcats championship last season, it's very interesting that there hasn't been any asterisk talk at all surfacing about this season. Well, my thoughts on asterisks have been very consistent all the way back to probably episode one. I think they're there to denote something that is different from the norm. Yep. Of course, it's an asterisk season yeah. for various reasons. Yeah. Scheduling, player contracts. The Melbourne Cup. Number of imports. Yeah, the NBL Cup. All sorts of reasons. So, yeah, absolutely. And it, does, it shouldn't be a negative thing. It doesn't mean it's any better or worse. You only need to see the dejection on the faces of... Creek and Mitchell, as I said in their press conference when they lost the semis, to know that this is still just as big as any. Yeah. The the joy on, on Goulding's face, you know, after game two, the relief. Yep. Of course, it's as big as any championship. But yes, it does need an asterisk because it was different from the norm. Mm. 
And as I say, it does not detract from the fact that Melbourne are very worthy winners. Of course they are. Assuming that a miracle doesn't happen in the next week. Well, yeah. Yeah, which we can pretty safely assume one. So should we go through the games quickly? Yeah. Both coaches used 10 players in the first quarter of game one, which is crazy. Hmm. And it was good timing here in Perth because there were no AFL games on. So the stadium was packed out. Although, that being said, I think the stadium would have been packed out anyway for a grand final. I think so, yeah. As I predicted, and as I mentioned in the semis, I thought the third quarters would be big going into the finals. And sure enough, that's where Melbourne won game one in the third quarter. They outscored Perth by a significant amount. And so, look, game one, I think this game was exactly the sort of game that summed up why I picked United to sweep. I I thought it would be close in Perth, but... United would ultimately have just a little bit too much. And and look, this was a lot closer than I was expecting. They gave the Wildcats a ton of chances. Oh, it was so gutsy So by the Wildcats. Yeah, a lot of missed shots. United missed a ton of easy stuff around the rim they would usually make. They missed a lot of wide-open threes. I've got a stat in that vein, Stewie, thanks to NBL Facts, as usual. It is the first time ever that no US import had double figures. In a playoff game. In a playoff game. In a, game. In a game. grand finals wow. game. Wow. Yeah. Well, I suppose when you look at it, I mean, Blanchfield dominated the scoring for the Wildcats with 27. You had Landale scored a few for United. Yeah. Well, Hobson comes off the bench, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, Mooney did have a shocker. He had eight points on 37% shooting with five turnovers and only six boards for Mr. Double-Double. He has looked decidedly different as a player without Bryce Cotton. Well, it makes Alex Loughton's comments in a couple of episodes ago when we interviewed him very prescient, doesn't he? Because when we kind of said, oh, does Mooney deserve a sneaky MVP pick? He said, no, no. without Cotton. Yeah. Yep. Bang on. Yep. Well done, Alex. You yeah. So go back and listen to that one. Nailed that one. So, yeah, look, Perth were not without chances, though, as I said. I mean, Jesse Wagstaff had a not a wide open three, oh. but an incredibly good look at a three. Not- Flashes of Andrew Vlahov. Not, not a, it wasn't as in and out. Yeah. It was- but, like, it, it did take you straight back there, didn't yeah. it? As a Wildcats fan. So, oh. so, look, it was, yeah, it was a gutsy performance. Uh, Mitch McCarron, I thought, was was great. Um, probably even better in game two, actually. His game two was phenomenal. But, you know, he's been a, a really great floor leader for them. They're getting a little bit off the benches. You know, different players are stepping up in, in different sort of games. Joe Lawalachul was great in games one and two before he got injured. You know, Barber was great in game two as well. So, yeah, different guys. Perth aren't protecting the ball. So they had 17 turnovers in game one, which was really key for a team that's protected the ball really well all season. And Kevin White's played superbly well. He's hitting a lot of threes, but he doesn't protect the ball that well. Well, And this is because he's being put in positions that he's not used to being. I mean, he's being asked to play key minutes oh, yeah, down sure. the stretch. Sure. He's being asked to go against the first team players of Melbourne United as well. You know, if he's going up against Mitch McCarron or a Chris Goulding, like those guys are, they're good defenders. Oh, of course. So Yeah, yeah, McCarron particularly. So it does make it very difficult. The other stat that sticks out to me, Melbourne 40 to 26 in points in the paint. Yep. So, again, it's a miracle Perth even got within three, it has to be yeah. said. And, and that's simply down to the fact that Jock Landau can play with his back to the basket, whereas John Mooney kind of doesn't have Yeah, that no, he game. faces up a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yep. he'll shoot fadeaways as opposed to Landau who'll face up out of, out of like, he'll back down and then and then face in and shoot little hook shots or layups, that sort of thing. So, A couple of quick little notes that were nice. Alan Black and Ricky Grace presenting the Coach of the Year and MVP, respectively, to Bryce and to Trev. I thought that was a nice little touch. And the other thing, I enjoyed Damo's little swipe. He's a comedian, that guy. As a great man once said, this ain't a cupcake league, and I believe that Corey Williams said it too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And, of course, Corey's on Twitter, like, putting out the brooms for the sweep and all that sort of stuff after picking Perth all year long. He's happy he doesn't have to get that tattoo. Yeah, true. So game two, I had the pleasure of going to. You actually were offered tickets, but you couldn't go because of family reasons, as we mentioned last week. I had corporate seats all of about five metres away from the Wildcats bench, but my lovely children decided to be sick, and I got to stay at home and yell and scream at the TV instead. Well, you can give insights on the commentary because I have no idea what was said. Well, if if you had the sound up, I don't know. I mean, I couldn't really hear them over me yelling. So Magne hit a three, first three for the Wildcats, first points. Then Mooney hit a three. And you're thinking, geez, okay, they might be on again here. They might have a chance here. But no, it wasn't. It didn't feel the same as game one, didn't it? Game one, Perth gave Melbourne their best punch and they didn't knock them out. And sure enough, game two, Melbourne had a little bit more control. A little bit more, yeah. So I I yelled at the TV a lot more in game two. I, I thought the umpiring in game one was superb. 
I didn't have an issue with with any of that. There were a few. Superb is a stretch. No, as but, far but, as, the, as but far woeful. As, it was woeful in game two. As far as NBL umpiring goes, oh, yeah, it, okay, was, oh, well, it was superb. Okay, yeah. There were three really key, and I don't, I do not want anyone thinking that I'm blaming the umpires for us losing, but there were three really, really interesting calls. So the first one was a very, very disappointing unsportsmanlike foul on Corey Sherville. So he's basically gone up to contest the shot. As he's come down, he slapped at the ball for a second time. Hit him fairly hard, but it's the playoffs. It's a playoff. Oh, game. yeah. The, we, and as soon as they started reviewing it, you knew it yeah. was going to get upgraded. Right? Oh, it's disgraceful. So that, The interpretation of unsportsmanlike in the NBL. So that, Absolutely yeah, disgraceful. That one was very frustrating. Now, the second one, I think, was probably the most crucial of the lot. Now, you were at the game. You said to me at the time, the Udai Baba three at halftime just destroyed the arena. Oh, it was huge. It was huge, at least where I was sitting. So it's a big arena. There were 13-odd thousand people there. but And I was in the nosebleeds, admittedly. But it took the oxygen out of the place. It was astonishing. Everyone around me, after that shot was hit, I'll actually read some tweets that I posted while I was sitting in the stands there from our account at Sportblokes, if you want to have a follow and a look. Still a collective sense of shell shock here at Perth Arena after the half-court shot. So important for everyone to play the whistle and the buzzer. Did he take three steps before? Yes. Umpiring woeful both ways. Yes, he did take three steps. That's the problem. It actually felt like that funk wasn't totally shaken off until Kevin White hit a three in the last minute of the third. So that that malaise in the crowd after that half-court shot lasted nearly an entire quarter, at least where I was sitting. And that's a big deal when you've got home court fans, yeah. you know? You're trying to get your team over the line. And he absolutely travelled. He did. He did. He did that little two-steps shuffle yeah. that guys do between... The gather. Yeah, which absolutely is a travel, in my opinion. Yeah, it and is. It's, it is. I'm surprised that no one else actually picked up on that in terms of the commentating team. But, yeah, it was disappointing. And as soon as he put that up, and I'm screaming travel out. I just knew it was going in. Yeah. Just you had that feeling it was going yeah, in. Yeah. So there was those. The other one, and look, I'm not sure if this is a rule change, but there was an out-of-bounds play very, very close, or right down on the baseline, where the ball was knocked out off the Wildcats with about 4.9 seconds on the shot. Oh, no reset. Well, not so much the no reset, but the fact that after the challenge, the ball was then taken out of the hash mark, out sort of level with the three, the free throw, oh, right. instead of down on the Where, baseline. Yeah, yeah. So I was confused as to why the ball was moved up, and it resulted in United getting a much easier shot. Well, we were confused about yeah. the lack of reset. We were talking about that. Mm. Yeah, well, so, yeah, we'll have to look at the rule book anyway, on that one. We don't want to sit here and talk for half an hour about the umpiring because it. Oh no, no, it's not the reason. The Wildcats shot twenty eight percent in the second half. Blanchfield had an absolute shocker, unfortunately. And look, he's been carrying a massive load. We've lived or died with him, basically, since all the other injuries. Landau had 17 boards, which is a record for 40-minute finals games. That basically sums it up. Yeah. Landau absolutely showed why he should have been on the shortlist for the MVP. Yes, absolutely. Okay, not the MVP of the league. I, I'm happy to say that. but he To me, he was second behind. He should have been second behind yeah. Bryce. And certainly he showed why he was a member of the All-NBL first team. And I've been saying before the season even started, he should have been in the NBA. He shouldn't even be playing in the NBL. He's an NBA yeah. talent. Yeah, but going back to what I was saying before, this was a game Mitch McCarron absolutely controlled this game from start to finish for me. There were a number of plays that he made. The The absolute highlight for me was this one-hand wraparound pass through three guys in traffic for a layup. He just, he was reading the play well. Obviously, his defense is yeah, superb. like a terrier on the defensive end. But yeah, offensive rebounds, all sorts of things. I, I just thought he was not an unsung hero because he did get a lot of credit, especially from the commentators. But I mean, he had one of the best games you would see in terms of impact versus versus stats, I guess. So, yeah, phenomenal. Well done to United. They deserve their 2 nothing lead and we'll probably finish it off in game three. Big news now. So I get this shell shock when I get home last night from the quiz that I MC. A consortium led by Craig Hutchison are going to buy the Wildcats when they already have ownership stakes in United. Yeah. The Perth fans are not happy about this. Now, look, the, we, we won't go into too much detail now. We need the details to unfold. I'm prepared to... I don't want to jump to conclusions here when we don't have the full story. Do you know what I mean? But the, the curious thing to me is, why did it come out when it did? Did, yeah. someone, did someone leak to stoke anger amongst the NBL fan base and the Wildcats fan base? Mm. I've kept a very close eye on Twitter and Reddit since this happened, and there are not many happy people, let me tell you. In fact, I don't think anyone said, oh, I'm happy with this. 
Well, look, I, I'm looking forward to supporting the Warrnambool Wildcats next season. <laughs> I don't think there's any danger of that happening. But I just hope, I just hope, now we knew the team was going to be sold. I just hoped that whoever came in, and I was kind of hoping maybe some NBA players would jump in because they've been, that's been happening a lot in the league. We've mm. talked about a few times. I just hope that whoever does come in, if this does go through, don't change what isn't broken. Yeah. It's a great culture. It's a great team. You don't need to change the logo. You don't need to change the colours. You don't need to change anything. Leave it as it is. I mean, we could use more blue in our uniforms. Blue and yellow. (laughs) Well, no, we could use less yellow (laughs) in our Indigenous uniforms that make us look like the fucking Melbourne Tigers. That's very true. We don't need that. She's been saying we a lot, aren't we? We are fans. We. So I'm sure there'll be more to come out of that story and we will talk about that again next week. You can't help but wonder if maybe someone was releasing that information when the series was over. And let's face it, at 2-0 down with the two home games already gone, the series is over. And now, this week in sport history. June 23rd, 1981, the longest game in professional baseball finishes with the Portucket Red Sox finally defeating the Rochester Red Wings 3-2 in 33 innings. <laughs> That sounds crazy enough until you realise that the game actually began on the 18th of April, two months earlier. Okay. The portion of the game beginning in April was called off at 4.07am after more than eight hours. Ordinarily, the International League, which these two teams belong to, they would suspend a game at about 12.50 in the morning, but the home plate umpire's rulebook didn't actually have that rule in it. So eventually... (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) So eventually the IL president, Harold Cooper, who was horrified to hear the game was still going, made the call for them and said, look, at the end of this inning, call it off. It's done. Wow. The players had to start another game the next day at 11 o'clock, or basically the same day at 11 o'clock in the morning. So they had to resume that game the next time that the Red Wings were in town, which was on the 23rd of June. And it took just 18 minutes before Portucket's Dave Coza hit the winning run off Steve Grilly, who wasn't even a member of the Red Wings when the game started. Ah, it's like that NBA one. Exactly. Wow. So the game holds a ton of records, including most innings, most at-bats, single team and total, most total strikeouts, and the longest played appearance by a single umpire. June 24th, 2010, from one long match to another. In the longest match in tennis history, American John Isner defeated Nicholas Mahut of France at Wimbledon after 11 hours, five minutes of play over three days, 6-4-3-6-6-7-7-6-70-68. The match started at 6.13pm on June 22nd before being suspended for bad light at 9.07pm before the fifth set had started. They then played from 2.05 until 9.09 the next day and finally from 3.40 until 4.47 on the third day. The third set alone lasted 8 hours and 11 minutes. That was good enough for the longest professional match on its own ahead of a 2013 Davis Cup match between Stan Marinka and Thomas Burdich. The scoreboard actually malfunctioned at 47 all in the fifth set as it wasn't programmed to go any higher. Following that, Isner would play Tiemo Debaca, who himself won 16-14 in the fifth set in the previous round. But after Isner had served 113 aces in the match against Mahut, he didn't manage a single one against Debaca and was so exhausted he was bundled out in just 74 minutes. Wimbledon has since introduced a fifth set tiebreak, so barring a change, this won't ever happen again. And as good as it was, hopefully it doesn't ever happen again. (laughs) I mean, I watched that whole thing. It was nuts. Wow. I, like, I, I was so invested in that. It was the most insane thing I've ever seen. Not in one sitting. No, 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 no. Across the three days. Yes. <laughs> June 25th, 2014, Uruguay footballer Luis Suarez is charged with biting in a match against Italy at the 2014 FIFA World Cup. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. He sunk his sizable chompers into Giorgio Cialini's shoulder. Now, it was the third documented case for Suarez after he bit Otman Bacal's shoulder playing for Ajax against PSV Eindhoven in 2010. And in 2013, he bit Branislav Ivanovic's arm playing for Liverpool against Chelsea, earning seven and 10 match bans respectively. His third strike gained him a £66,000 fine and a ban from entering any stadium for four months, as well as a nine match ban from all internationals. Naughty, naughty. Teeth of God. Mm. <laughs> we didn't score any goals with them. June 28th, 1975, reigning PGA Championship winner Lee Trevino and playing partners Jerry Hurd, Bobby Nichols, Jim Ahern and Tony Jacklin are all struck by lightning in the second round at the Western Open at Butler National at Oak Brook, Illinois. 
Jacqueline was the first to be struck in his follow-through after hitting an eight iron. The bolt knocked the club 30 feet after his hands. A Hearns putter was struck and thrown from his hands. Another bolt immediately knocked his playing partner Nichols to the ground, who claimed he had lost his equilibrium. Trevino and Heard were the last to be hit when the umbrella they were under was struck by a bolt which spread from a nearby lake. Trevino was struck on the body and Heard suffered burns to his midsection where the handle of his putter was resting. After the tournament, Trevino was asked by a reporter what he would do if he were out on the course and it began to be stormy again. Trevino answered he would take out his one iron and point to the sky because not even God can hit the one iron. (laughs) (laughs) Devil club, those things. But amazingly, Heard was able to leave the hospital in time to continue the tournament and he finished tied for fourth. Unbelievable. Crazy. I think he was only two or three shots off the lead as well, which is even more insane. Wow. This week in sport history. So, Stewie, again, a very basketball-heavy episode. We make no apologies for that, given it's playoff time. But quickly in the AFL world, it seems that there's just as much going on off the field as there is on it. New South Welsh teams are fleeing from Melbourne to avoid the Delta outbreak there. Carlton's woes are well and truly under the microscope. There are debates raging whether or not Tassie should have a team, and if that team should be the Suns. They shouldn't even be an AFL team. <laughs> Stringer's dominating for the Bombers, funnily enough, in a contract year. And let me say, Toby Green had one of the best stories I've seen in maybe the last 20 years. And before we get to maybe the new game of the season after the one last week, tips. Four out of five this week. Missed the margin by a point in the Geelong Western Bulldogs game, thanks to Gary Rowan. I knew I should have gone the safe route in the Hawthorne-Essendon game, but Hawthorne have looked pretty decent the last couple of weeks. And oh, being, they smashed us last yeah, week. Yeah, being in Tassie, I thought I'd give them a go. Oh, that's they were leading late in that game, or certainly in the fourth quarter anyway. So, you know, it wasn't a horrible tip, but unfortunately not quite right. You did a bit better, I believe. Yeah, five out of five for me. And it's a perfect round, but it doesn't, I mean, five, you know, yeah. it's not eight or nine. But I have climbed up to 581 overall. So I'm back in uh, in, in the running. Well, maybe. No, <laughs> no, you're probably still at 10 off the lead, but... I was three off the margin. There you go. So as I mentioned, there's off-field dramas aplenty, and it starts with Port Adelaide masks after the South Australian government was saying, don't touch the balls that are kicked into the stand after a goal last week. Well, I mean, the players are doing the wrong thing off the field this yeah, time. So, yeah. yeah, we have to address this no-mask controversy. So, Zach Butters, Ollie Lord, Dylan Williams and Mitch Georgiades seen at the Olympic swimming trials in Adelaide. Basically, the four of them have attended it. The camera snapped them sitting there all unmasked. It was decided that because they'd just finished eating and drinking, they didn't have a case to answer. And they even produced receipts to prove that they'd purchased food and drink. So, it was a forensic investigation. I'm going to come out and just say it. This is an absolute disgrace. This excuse does not fly with me at all for one simple reason. None of the four of them even have masks in their hands, let alone on their faces, around their chins. You can't tell me that the four even had masks at all because we can't tell. There's no actual, evidence. no evidence, no glimpse of a mask in, in any of those photos. So yeah, you, you just can't possibly tell. I understand there's a difference between this and the whole Tex Walker, Luke Brown, not wearing a mask on a plane incident, but there kind of shouldn't be really at the same time. These, there seems a lack of consistency. Yeah. These players are still members of the AFL. They're setting a horrible example. I mean, at least Walker and Brown had the masks around their chins during the photos. So you can kind of give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they wore them at some stage. But these guys are just sitting there. One of the four players had a half-drunk bottle of Coke in their hand. The other three guys are just sitting there, you know, with their with their chin on their on their fist, basically just watching the the swimming. So there's absolutely no inkling at all that they're about to put a mask on. So I don't really understand how it's a fine for Adelaide, but not for Port. So. Yeah, I think it's a blatant misstep. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a bit inconsistent. It's a bit It's a bit off, isn't it? It's a bit off. Like, if I'm the Adelaide Crows, I'd be going to the league asking for that 50 grand back. Yeah, saying, yeah well, well, that's... Well, Tex and Luke were just sitting there after eating and drinking, so really there shouldn't be a fine. Like, they could make up something like that and just say, well... I know it's yeah. punters rather than players, but I remember seeing people in the crowd being basically rushed when they were clearly nursing a beer for the pure reason that they didn't want to wear a mask. So it was like they're holding onto a beer for like a whole quarter, yeah, you know. I did that so for Wildcats. If that's happening to the crowd, then, yeah, the players need to have some accountability. Yeah. Uh, it's just honestly, for me, it's the fact that you can't see a mask anywhere. They're not holding it in their hand. It's not around their chin. It's it's just, it's nowhere to be not seen. Not apparent, yeah. So for me, I, I think if you're going to find the crows, you've got to find the power. It's really disappointing. Let's get on to better stuff. Game of the season so far after last week's Richmond Eagles game. 
Yeah, look, I mean, unfortunately, we don't have a whole heap of time to talk about it. But and crack, I haven't watched it yet. Cracking game of footy. I mean, two of the absolute favourites of the flag this year. Gary Rowan kicking a goal from about 45 out. Fairly tough angle. Yeah, it's a good kick. You just It's a weird kick. Yeah, after the siren, you just never felt like he was going to miss it, though. So there's a famous one that I can think of, Daniel Motlop, while he was playing for Port Adelaide against St Kilda, I think it was 2006, and he's taken a mark, the siren's gone, and you can see the look on his face of, oh, fuck, I've got to kick this one after the siren, and no surprise, he missed. They show you the same thing with Gary Rowan, Siren goes off. His facial, facial yeah. expression does not change. He's going to kick that. Well, game. he's done it before. He did it for the Swannies. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't surprised at all that he kicked it. No. So, absolute cracker. I mean, look, this is, as I say, something I'd love to talk a little bit more about. There were some great individual performances. You know, a lot of the, the key midfielders obviously had great games, as you'd expect with two of the best midfields in the entire competition. Zach Tui had probably the tackle of the season, chasing down Marcus Bontempelli. It was funny, wasn't it? He's never looked more Cuda-like as he kind of nonchalantly carried the ball and he was looking cool and, you know, and then bang, oh, Tui laid that tackle. He rips into it. But I think a lot of the, the key talk really needs to be around Joel Selwood's action. So there were two separate incidents. So one, he ran his studs down Taylor Jure's shin and then he was also seen making contact with Bailey Dale's face. Now, you've seen both of the incidents. Yep. What are your thoughts? I, I think they're stomping. I mean, I wouldn't even call it stomping for lack of a better word. I, th- I do think that was accidental. And Scotty came out and defended him pretty strongly against that the other one was the other one was dodgy it was unseemly yeah i I, I don't disagree with that i I definitely think yeah the jure one was him walking back to go to the mark look who knows he might have meant to do it he might have but there was enough plausible deniability there yeah yeah but definitely yeah when when the players are tackled to the ground it's amazing how often you do see that though guys putting a little bit extra extra mustard in you know might be dropping an elbow of course or a fist because they think that people can't see him that's why and i think the league does need to crack down on this sort of stuff i've got no problems with players being rubbed out for a week for that there's no place no me neither no yeah yeah absolutely. absolutely none so i have to ask the question a lot of people have installed the cats as favorites now because of this what are your thoughts? Well, let me say, before Kawhi Leonard got injured, I thought, bloody hell, my two picks for the championship winners last year were a year early because I had the Clippers and Cats. The Cats are looking pretty good. Hmm. They've won six or seven in a row. The next best is two. So they're going pretty well. So you could make a strong case. However, Mitch Duncan's going to be out until week one of the finals minimum. Hawkins hurt his neck in that game. So they're a little bit banged up. But they're, look, they're certainly right up there. You'd have to think they kind of sit in a boat with three or four other teams still. I still don't think that they've necessarily put any distance between themselves and, say, the likes of Melbourne. The Western Bulldogs played them tough. Brisbane are still looking okay. We're a little bit shaky over the weekend, but there's still probably three or four teams in that that top tier that look like they could easily win it. Yeah. Admittedly, I've been watching a lot more basketball than footy lately, but... My gut would tell me that the competitors in this very game are the top two teams at this stage as far as my my title favourites. And one last little one to uh, round things out. We spoke about Joel Selwood's indiscretions. Toby Green's been at it again. Uh, little, little jumper punch. Yeah. Oh, look, it, he's the dirtiest player in the league, so it was probably time he had another one. But there wasn't anything in that one. There's nothing in that. So you're happy with the final? Yeah, 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 definitely. No, no you don't rub him out for that. Fair enough. All right, Stu, you know what that music means. What do you have for? Well, I've just discovered the world of car curling. <laughs> just like normal curling, but using cars instead of stones. That was bizarre. It's the, most, it's the most Russian game ever, so I'm <laughs> probably going to be watching a fair bit of that this week. But cracking weekend of footy ahead. The Lions and Cats this Thursday night at the Gabba. Your Swans and Port in Adelaide on Saturday and West Coast and the Bulldogs in Perth on Sunday. How about yourself? Well, I've got to say, all the basketball. I'm very interested to see how the lottery unfolds tomorrow. Will a team like the Oklahoma City Thunder get that number one pick like you're hoping? We'll trade up and get the entire top five. Or will it be a, a smoky? Until next time, I'm Nath. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes.